were listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Cindy Johnson, Chapter Leadership Committee member of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Cindy. Hello, Jeremy. This is episode 99 of Lighthearted, scheduled for January 18th, 2021. On January 18th, 1996, Cape San Blas Light in Florida was discontinued as an aid to navigation. The station was established in 1848, and the lighthouse tower had to be rebuilt three times, twice because the towers were destroyed by hurricanes. The cast iron skeletal tower that was built in 1885 was relocated to a park in the city of Port St. Joe in 2014. On January 18, 1882, the English author, poet, and playwright A.A. Milne was born. He's best known as the creator of Winnie the Pooh. He once wrote, quote, the third-rate mind is only happy when it is thinking with the majority. The second-rate mind is only happy when it is thinking with the minority. The first-rate mind is only happy when it is thinking, unquote. I love Winnie the Pooh, and I think he was right. <laughs> In today's episode of Lighthearted, we're going to listen to a conversation I had with the daughter of a lighthouse keeper in Massachusetts, Betty Hindley Hatsikon. Cindy, please help me introduce Betty. Sure, Jeremy. The parents of Joseph Hindley came from England and settled in the city of New Bedford, Massachusetts. Like his father before him, young Joseph went to work in the textile mills. Looking for a more adventurous life, he joined the Revenue Cutter Service in 1921. After some time in the Merchant Marines, Joseph Hindley joined the Lighthouse Service. He spent more than a decade as an assistant keeper, first at Whale Rock Light in Rhode Island and then at Butler Flats Light in New Bedford. Hindley joined the Coast Guard when they took over the management of lighthouses from the Civilian Lighthouse Service, and his time in the Coast Guard included 18 months in Greenland. When Hindley returned from Greenland, he went back to being a civilian lighthouse keeper, first as the head keeper at Saconet Point Light in Rhode Island from 1947 to 1950. Hindley and his family then moved to Gay Head Light Station at the western end of the island of Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts. The Hindley family spent six years at Gay Head, leaving when the light was automated in 1956. The keeper's house was demolished a short time later. The Hindleys moved on to Nobska Point Light in Woods Hole on Cape Cod, where Joseph served as an assistant to keeper Osborne Hallett until 1968. When Hallett retired, Hindley became the principal keeper. In 1967, while Hindley was at Nobska Point, he was honored with a Gallatin certificate from the Coast Guard as one of the last three civilian lighthouse keepers in New England. He retired in 1972 as the very last civilian keeper in the New England region. I had an opportunity recently to speak with Betty Hindley Hatsikon, daughter of Keeper Joseph Hindley. Let's listen to that conversation now. I'm speaking with Betty Hindley Hatsikon. Your father, Joseph Hindley, was, to the best of my knowledge, the last civilian lighthouse keeper in New England. Am I correct when I say that? Yes, he was. He retired in, was it 72 or 73 he retired? I believe it was 72. According to what I have, he began his career at Whale Rock Lighthouse in Rhode Island, which is a... That's what, true. Yeah, was an extremely rugged place to, to be a mm -hmm. keeper. 
and uh, doesn't exist anymore because the lighthouse was wiped out in the hurricane of 38. But That's um, true. tell me if I have these dates right. He was a second assistant, 1928 to 30, first assistant, third, 1930 to into 31 at Whale Rock. Does that sound right? Yes. Okay. Now, that was before your time, but... Oh, you... way before my time. Well, let me give you a little history. His parents immigrated from England to New Bedford, Massachusetts, well, through Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were working, my grandfather worked uh, in the textile mills. My father probably finished sixth grade, and then he was taken out of school to go work in the mills. And actually, I think, believe it was the Warm Sutter Mill in New Bedford, Massachusetts. However, he didn't take to that. So he went into the Coast Guard, but it was called the Revenue Service in 1921. And he was stationed on a Coast Guard cutter, a Kushnet, in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. And that tour of duty was just for one year because he got out in 19, I have a discharge paper, 1922. And then I'm not sure, I don't have anything to verify, but he did was in the Merchant Marine for a period of time. And then uh, finished whatever he was doing there and went back into the uh, into the lighthouse service. And it was still, I'm trying to think, when did the Coast Guard take over the lighthouse service? That was... In 39. Yes. That would have been in 39. Right. During the time he was at Butler Flats Lighthouse. Butler so. Flats, yes. Yeah. And he went, he went into... He was at Butler Flats. He was the second keeper with, uh, the keeper was Charlie Baker, mm-hmm. uh, who was a dear family friend. I have pictures of, I have a picture of he and I on our front porch. We were playing jacks, of all things. Huh. Uh, going, you know, when I was probably four or five, maybe, maybe you know, less than six, so probably four or five. And we, when Charlie Baker was off, I think they were on, they had two days off a week. My father would row over to the beach in front of our house, and he'd take my mother and I over to the lighthouse for the for the afternoon, and then he'd row us back. And I can remember one time he was bringing the the, the rowboat around to bring it by the ladder, and he told me to stay up top. But I've always been a person that sort of does what she wants, mm. <laughs> and I started down the ladder, and I fell in. So the you know the family story was well she fell off Butler Flats but we picked her out of the water before her hair bowl got wet. He was at Butler Flats until World War II started, and he went back into the Coast Guard. Went once once the uh, lighthouse service became was taken over by the Coast Guard. Uh, he went back into the Coast Guard and he was stationed at uh, State Pier in New Bedford. He was stationed in Boston, Constitution Base. I think he was at the Brooklyn Navy Yard at one point in time. And then they, right after my brother was born, so that would have been in 1944, he was sent to Greenland hmm. for the for 18 months. So he did a tour in Greenland. Wow. He went up on the Coast Guard cutter, a Kushnet, but I don't remember, I don't remember the name of boat that he came back on. And he was offered two things. He could either take charge of a buoy station, or he could go back to being a civilian keeper for the light, uh, for as a lighthouse keeper, mm-hmm. and he liked, you know, he liked being in charge. He liked his lighthouses, 
and he chose uh, the lighthouse. So he, he got back from Greenland. He went to Sakonet Point right. as the principal keeper. And he was there until March of 1950 when he was transferred to Gay Head. Do you remember anything about, uh, did he tell you anything about Whale Rock? Was that what that was like? Or do you, do you remember him saying anything about that? Well, it, you know, it was sort of desolate being yeah. out there. Yeah. But that, you know, that was about, that was about all. You know, this, he talked about the storms and, you know, the, the other, his, the crew with him. He never really said too much about it. And Butler Flats, of course, uh, you were born during his years at Butler Flats. Well, as I said, my father used to come over, and uh, when Charlie Baker was off for his two days off a week, right. um, sometimes you know, Dad would roll roll over and get my mother and I and take us out, mm-hmm. and you know, she'd cook lunch or dinner, or we you know, we'd have a visit, and then he'd row us back home. Yeah, so just for the day, right? And... Just just for the day, yeah. yeah. Uh, but you know, you run up and down to the tower room, and you know what? All what I always remembered about being in that tower room was there were like three pedals, you know, like pedals on a piano. Okay. And I was always fascinated with with pushing those because I didn't know what they were for. But apparently, they were air vents. Huh. Okay. If I remember correctly, I just remember the they remind because. My mother would always played the piano, and there was always a piano in the house. So they just looked just like the pedals on a piano. That's interesting. I know the you know brass vents that are in mo- the lantern. Well, yeah, the lanterns of most lighthouses. But I don't know the pedal things that you're talking about. Well, they were brass. I know that. <laughs> yeah, like a lot of well, things. They were very true. And I have a lot of lighthouse brass in my home. Do you? I have uh, two solid brass oil lamps that we had at Gay Head. And my mother had them electrified, and she brought them with her to Nobska. Then after they retired, she they were, you know, in their family home. Uh, one was going to be for my brother, and one was going to be for me. So she gave me mine. And then uh, my brother married, and he had his lamp in his house, and unfortunately he passed away. And I was thinking to myself, how am I ever going to get that lamp? <laughs> uh, but... My sister-in-law passed away eventually, too, and I became the owner of the second lamp, so I've got both of them. And then I have a solid brass oil can, 10-gallon oil can, that I, it's in front of my fireplace, and that was used at Gay Head, put it in the wagon, take it to the oil house, and fill it with kerosene to bring it back to fill, a, fill the lighthouse yeah. lamp and our, home, our oil lamps at home. Well, those are museum pieces there. And I didn't know I didn't know that uh, my father had the uh, oil can, but the Christmas before he died, he kept asking me what I wanted for Christmas. I said, you know, Dad, I don't need anything. You know, just be happy. Just come. My mother had since passed away. And he came to my house, and he had this oil can all polished up, absolutely beautiful. So I still polish Lighthouse Brass. What do you use to polish it? Uh, I use rights. Brass polish. Okay. Was that what you used back then? Like a gay Well, hat? what we used was government issue. I have no idea what it was, but right. it came in a green, a green can, mm-hmm. and it worked perfectly. And I had some of that, and, you know, in, <laughs> the years have gone by, you know, 
that has all run out. So sure. I found that Wright's was the best substitute, and it polished. It's not Wright's copper and brass. It's just Wright's brass polish. Somebody said that I should just have them uh, treated so that I'd never have to polish them. I said, well, yes, you could do that, but then they lose their value. And you probably kind of enjoy polishing them. Kind of I do. It, you know, it's just uh, brings back a lot of memories. I'm sure. These lamps were made at the Lamp Depot in Brooklyn, New York. That's stamped on the bottom of the lamp and the oil can, too. So I just want to mention for a minute again, you, you mentioned Charlie Baker a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And he was at Butler Flats for 30 years. He was. Yeah. And his father was there before before, before him. him. Amos yep, Baker. that's true. And, that's uh, true. I'll bet Charlie was an interesting character. You mentioned that you said you have a picture of you with him. Yeah, we're playing jacks. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just imagine him being an old sea captain kind of, kind of character. What he do you, was. He, yeah. he was a lovely gentleman, and mm-hmm. you know, awfully, awfully nice to a little girl. That's great. We'd play whatever, whatever. If I had my dolls out, he'd stop by and we'd chat back and forth. Anything else you remember about Butler Flats? <laughs> my mother and father used to wave to each other. She'd have a white dishcloth, <laughs> huh. and he'd have a white towel. I mean, our house was that close. Right. If if, if you drove uh, down to East Rodney French Boulevard in New yep. Bedford and stopped in front of the lighthouse, that was our family home. It doesn't look anything like what it did in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, but it was a lovely little bungalow with a beautiful wide front porch that went the whole front of the house. Yeah, I know the the area. I've been in Butler Flats Lighthouse once about 20 years ago. It's now privately owned. You probably know that. It is privately owned, and every time I see a picture of it, I say, well, somebody please paint it. I know it. Oh, my goodness. It looks like it's in such disrepair. Yeah, the city of New Bedford owned it for a long time, and I'm afraid it hasn't gotten good care in a while. Quite no. A, uh, moving on, you mentioned his next lighthouse was Sakonet. Point, uh, which is off uh, Little Compton, Rhode Island. Yes. That was f- about 46 to 50 he was there. Yes. Did you ever go out there to that lighthouse? That one's even harder to get on than uh, I, Bu- Butler I, Flats. Because he was only home one week out of a month all of, until we moved to Gayhead. Uh, he was always, I and mean, that was that was his uh, work schedule, yeah, Four get, week, mm-hmm. uh, three weeks on, one week at home. Right. I so, think that, you, you know, the week that he was home, it was like, you know, Christmas. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> was on their best behavior, and, you know, we went shopping, went to toy store, movies, book, the bookstore, everything that, you know, that my brother and I loved to do. Every once in a while in the summertime, he would, uh, if he was home, we would drive out to Sakana Point, to Little Compton, and um, we'd have a picnic on the beach. Usually he'd have one of his crew members uh, row, row ashore, take my brother and I out to the lighthouse. And um, I never did make it out there because uh, we started off, he was rowing from the, you know, from the beach. And the minute we got into dark water, when I couldn't see bottom anymore, I was frightened. Mm. So he took me back and he and my brother went out. And it's funny, I don't, I don't know why that frightened me, but I know when we'd be going out to Butler Flats, 
when you would get to it, you know, the, of course, the, the bottom of it is all painted black. Right. And with that and the dark water, that always scared me. Don't know why. You don't know what's what's in there. If I, could, if I couldn't see bottom, I didn't want to be there. Uh-huh. I, I got over that over the years, but... Somewhere I picked up a story that uh, the local lobsterman would throw him a bag of lobsters when he was at Sakana. They did. Yeah, and he would they bring did. them home. Uh-huh. Yep, he did. You know, God bless my mother. She was a strong woman. She had me in grade school and my brother a severe asthmatic in and out of the hospital at least once a month, every month. We'd never see family members until, you know, the day Dad got home because when he came home, he knew, the, they knew, he would be bringing lobsters with him. They'd all want, they'd all come to get their lobsters, his two sisters and their husbands. But we didn't see them, you know, other than, you know, very, very rarely other than the time that my father was home. So why don't we talk about Gay Head for a while? Now you moved there in 1950, is that right? He was transferred there in March of 1950. Uh huh. And we came after school got out that year. So I was just finishing sixth grade, and uh, my brother, uh, my brother had just finished kindergarten. And of course, in those days, there was the beautiful big uh, duplex house at, at Gayhead that's long gone now. There uh, was what a beautiful bed and breakfast that would make. Yeah, yeah. Of course, it would have, the house would have had to have been uh, moved back from the edge of the the cliff there, like the lighthouse. Well, yeah, was. And, and at this point, because I think where, where the tower is now, it's probably where the house was part of the house anyway. When we first went to Gay, because Gayhead was the last town in Massachusetts to become electrified, mm-hmm. and that was in the end of 1951, and the town had a huge party, I think in Valentine's Day, 1952. Cape and Vineyard brought the wires all the way up to just the lighthouse driveway, and that was it. <laughs> so we went from a house with all the modern utilities to a home that there wasn't any electricity, running water, bathroom. There was an outhouse, but that was it. It was our family adventure, that's for sure. I actually read a quote in uh, a few years ago. I think you were interviewed for a newspaper article, and you talked about how you know the weather could be crazy there, living on the, the cliff there, but the house was snug and warm, you said? Never, never, you know, I can't remember if there were drafty windows. I don't think there ever, you know, there ever were because the house was always tight. You, you heard the wind, but to this day, I love the wind and I love storms. People think I'm nuts. <laughs> yeah, it must have been so windy so much of the time on the on the cliff there. There was always wind. Very few days that it was still. While you were there, you got you got running water in the house, right? But... I was going to say no, no drink. drinking water, right, yeah. No. Uh, the Coast Guard used to bring a water truck and fill up the cistern every once in a while. But our drinking water we uh, got from the fresh springs in in Gayhead. There were two of them. I guess one of them you can't even use anymore. It's on the side of State Road. You, you drive right by it every time you're, you're up island. But I guess that one you can't use anymore. And there was another one. In, in a path off the road, just on, just on the curve as you make the curve to go down towards, 
towards the lighthouse. But I used to go with my father to uh, fill the the water jugs. You know, some in the winter time you'd have to chop the ice uh-huh. to get to the water. Huh. Uh, in the spring and summertime, sometimes there would be bullfrogs <laughs> on the top, and I always question that. And apparently, you know, some old timer told my father, if the bullfrogs are, are in the water, it's the purest water you're ever going to drink. <laughs> Whether that's true or not, I do not know. <laughs> well, you hoped it but was true. But we drank the water, and we were, never, we were all fine. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. Before we started the interview here, we were chatting a little bit. You mentioned the Flying Santa. Uh, yes. Edward Rose Edward Snow at that time was the uh, the Flying Santa. And uh, what do you remember about the, the Flying Santa visits at that time? Well, every year he would come at Christmas time. The plane, the plane would fly over, and he'd have his door open, and he would lean out and drop a package to us. And uh, there was always his latest book, which my brother and I would usually fight over who was going to read first. And there would be some uh, paperback books, some notion, what you would call notions, hand cream, maybe shaving cream for my father. There'd be all sorts of little things in the package. It was always like opening uh, a surprise gift. Were there ever toys that were meant especially for you? Well, yeah, there would you know, be, be a little, maybe a little doll, uh, some you know, trucks for my for my brother. There were all there were toys for boys and girls. There was probably one toy for each gender. But he basically knew how you know he knew what kids were living at the lighthouse, so he knew there were you know there was a girl and a boy, so. There'd be some coloring books, there might be some crayons, uh, all the things that you look forward to. Yeah. Now, did Edward Rose Snow ever visit you at the family at Gayhead Lighthouse? No. Maybe later at Nobska? We did, we did meet him at Nobska. Uh, I imagine that you knew the families living at the other lighthouses at that time, and uh, Simon Ponsart Roberts, who uh, was father, her father, Octave Ponsart was the keeper at West Chop. Did you know the Ponsart family? Very well. Octave and my father both grew up in New Bedford, so they knew each they knew each other. Uh, in fact, I think Dad probably was at Sakonic Point. I know Ponsarts were at Cutty Hunk. When they came off of Cutty Hunk to visit family in New Bedford, because I know Simon's grandparents were in New Bedford, they used to say, they always stopped by and visited. I've known Simone since she was four years old. I'm probably three, three or four years old, and she's still in her seventies. So I'm three or four years older than than she. Yeah, I don't know if she um, liked me saying this, but I think she's now turned eighty. Ah, well, I'm three years older than her. <laughs> um, well, we're in touch on Facebook all the time, and once in a while we'll chat on the telephone. But they used to even. Uh, once we moved to Gay Head, the Ponsats came up all the time to visit. She was behind me in high school, probably a freshman. I was a senior. You mentioned the arrival of electricity, although at first it didn't quite reach the the light station, right? That's very yes, that's true. We didn't get electricity at the lighthouse until 1953. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And the reason that we got it was because they closed the Coast Guard station in Gay Head because that was getting very, very close to falling over the cliffs. And there was a station on Cuddy Hunk, the old station, that had been separated from the actual Cuddy Hunk Island during a hurricane. So they floated that co- that 
Coast Guard station over to Menemsha and rolled it up Menemsha Creek to where that Coast Guard station is to this day. And they, the Coast Guard still felt that they should have a watchtower. So they erected a tower right beside the Gayhead Lighthouse Tower. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's when we knew we might be getting electricity because they, I have a newspaper article from the Gazette that says, you know, the, the Coast Guard contractors um, brought a load of bricks and left them in the lighthouse yard, and then the contractors showed up to build, you know, this tower. And in order for them to work, they took ran a wire from the light pole at the end of the driveway so that they could use their electric tools. Right. And when they w- went home at night, or they finished for the day, they brought their their wire, their electric wire, into our house. So hmm. um, it, it was sort of a little bit of pandemonium. My mother, my mother used her electric washing machine, but which she was in storage <laughs> in the other half of the the duplex because there was nobody living there. Connected that up and did laundry. My father bought a television. That was the first TV we had. Plug in the electric iron and iron your clothes for the week. Because when I learned to iron, I learned to iron with the sad irons that you heated on the stove. And to this day, when I iron a shirt, I always start at the back because I can't tell you how many white blouses I scorched (laughs) (laughs) in the front. So, you know, I, I always start at the back because you can always put a sweater over that, over that. Nobody will ever see the burnt marks. But anyway, so, you know, we, every night we had electricity. We still had to use our oil lamps or we might have lit one electric lamp that we had packed away. But it was interesting. Yeah. You know, to, um, to be without, without electricity. And then all of a sudden you've cut this electric, every night you had this wire and you can put it, you know, plug in a radio, you can <laughs> plug in an electric mixer, you can do all sorts of things with that. That, that was um, that was a lot of fun, mm-hmm. and then uh, of course when they finished the tower, uh, electricity they came in and uh, wired the house for electricity, and we were all back to normal again. Yeah, they electrified the light. Right. So the electrification of the light happened like right after your your house got electricity. Well, the the light was uh, electrified beforehand. Oh, okay. We were we we got we got it. Uh, last but that was fine <laughs> yeah that was fine so when the light was electrified of course the beautiful big uh first order fresnel lens was removed uh, yeah and you know it's interesting about that because i can remember my mother i actually coming home from school one day high school and my mother saying that the coast guard had no plans for the fresnel lens they they were just going to get rid of it she called the Eggertown Historical Society and asked, told them what was uh, what was going to take place, and did they, you know, have an interest in it? And that's how that got started. Ah. Otherwise, might have been trashed. Well, that's what we thought. You know, the only way they were going to get it out of the towel was just drop it over the side, which but, would have been a shame. Yeah, they didn't realize the the value. The, the, the value? No, yeah. absolutely not. Mm-hmm. And. Just before we were trained, 1955, they came in and put indoor plumbing in. Just before the house was torn down. 
Well, yeah, they remodeled the whole kitchen, all new kitchen cabinets, uh, and then they tore the house down. Oh, and they filled the summer. When did we leave? We left, I think it was in September of 56. Uh, I didn't go because I had a job at the Martha City National Bank, and I got a little apartment in Vineyard Haven where I stayed, but I just graduated from high school. Anyhow, they filled, the Coast Guard filled both coal bins in August of that year, even though they knew that the station was going to be unmanned. So my father mentioned, you know, that to the people of Gay Head, and I can't tell you, everybody came and just grabbed, you know, took coal. Where where else is it going to go? <laughs> yeah. So they had warm houses for the winter. <laughs> yeah, good for them. So one other thing uh, before we, I want to talk about Nopska, but um, I understand that somewhere around that same time, the tower at Gay Head was sandblasted. Uh, you see older pictures, and it looks like uh, the looks yes, smoother because there was a coat of brown paint. Is that right? Before mm-hmm. that? Mm-hmm. Several coats of uh, brown paint, and they sandblasted it off. And my mother always said, we even took that sand with us to Nobska when we came because you just couldn't get rid of it. <laughs> you know, even though they, it's not like nowadays where they put plastic up all over everything to they just sandblasted, and that went all over everything. Was it a sad time when you left Gay Head for, for Nobska? Were you all sad to yes. leave? Yes. Well, my father wasn't. He couldn't wait to get off the island. He just felt like he was trapped. I don't hmm. know why. Huh. Because he'd been to so many remote places, you know, throughout his career, but he couldn't wait to get off the island. Hmm. And the rest of us, we would have stayed there forever. Yeah. For anybody listening who maybe isn't that familiar with Martha's Vineyard, it's an island, but it's a huge island. Yes, and it is. I uh, I go over every summer. And it's interesting where the Fresnel lens is at the museum. My son and his wife said last it was last last oh last uh, December. Uh, he said because they had they had friends on the island. They are over there quite a bit. So he said we're going to the vineyard. Why don't you come, well, it was in the summertime, why don't you come over and uh, we'll go to the museum. So, you know, I hopped on the Island Queen and they picked me up in Oak Bluffs and we went to the museum and it was just, uh, just seeing that uh, lens, oh my gosh, it was just heart-stopping because there's so much of my life history there. And um, at, the, at that time, they had a little, uh, they had, well, they still do, they have a little cafe in the, just off the room where the the light is in the center uh-huh. of the of the room, and they had uh, a naming contest. Some they wanted uh, there was a contest to name the cafe. So I can't remember what I put in, but my son <laughs> Bob put in what he thought he he should name it. Well, lo and behold, he won the contest. And do you know what the name was? First Light Cafe, <laughs> and that's what, you know, that's what they called it. They had no idea he was the grandson of the keeper at Gay Head Light, and they probably still don't know that, but the prize was a cocktail party for six of your friends, So last De- and that was in December, so last December we went over to the First Light Cafe to a cocktail party that... <laughs> Uh, Bob had, you know, some of his island friends and family friends, and we had a lovely time, and the light was just magnificent. Yeah, well, that's really it was nice. all lit up and decorated. Yeah, 
I hear it's fantastic. Yeah, I haven't oh, been you, there. So, you've yeah. got to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so the family history continues. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's that's great. That's a good story. Yeah. I uh, saw the lens a number of times in its old location in Edgartown, which was kind kind of nice. Yeah, but it was I a little. Too, the, yeah. Re- the replica of the tower. Yeah, it was a little stuff. cramped and a little hard to see the whole lens. But so I imagine it, the new setting probably shows off the lens uh, a lot but better. It, it does. It's uh, all open, and um, I know in Edgartown, when I went, the uh, curator was asking me questions about the light. I said, well, what you really need to do is clean those lenses. They're absolutely horrifying, dirty. They weren't clean. And I spent six years of my teenage years helping to polish those lenses. Yeah, so you knew what you were talking about. Yeah. I'm trying but to rem- it's a museum. They're nice and bright. You know, before electricity, there was a whole ritual for lighting that light. Right. Did you take part in that at all? Did you I help did. with it? Yeah. I did. I loved the, the little mantles. Actually, it was a bigger bell-shaped mantle for for gay head uh, for the light. But for our lamps in the house, they were little smaller uh, mantles, maybe about you know four inches high, whereas the uh, mantle for the gay headlight would be. Oh, probably between eight to ten inches in in height. Mm-hmm. And I guess that it's was like a bell. Yeah, an incandescent oil vapor lamp in the lighthouse. Yes, with kerosene. And it had to be careful when you lit the the light. You just did, you had to, you didn't want to burn up the mantle, which you could do very easily if you you know put the flame a little bit too high. Anyhow, did you learn how to do you, that on your own? How to light the light? I did, and you know it was. Interesting. My mother and I could do that, but we couldn't wind the weights. Mm. Even with two of us trying to wind the weights, we couldn't do it. So, and you know, my father—he was never ever sick. But that one time he was in the hospital. Coast Guard had to come over every night. They'd send a fellow over, usually the one that was going to stand, you know, stand the watch at the watchtower, and um, wind the wind the weights every four hours. Those had to be wound. The weights rotated the lens. For rotating lenses rotated on mercury, but they didn't all, so I'm not sure about gay head. We didn't have that yeah. at gay head. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a lot of lead paint. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you didn't eat it, I hope. <laughs> I did. See, that was the whole thing. You know, you, by the way, if it was chipping away from the window sills, you'd pick, Simon and I would both, you could talk <laughs> about that, picking up the little pieces of lead and chewing on it. Must have been tasty, yeah. (laughs) Well, we both both ended up great, you know, having, you know, successful years in high school. We were were smart, apparently, and uh, successful careers, that's for sure. So we didn't lose any brain cells. Well, I don't know. Maybe it helped you somehow. I don't know. But uh, (laughs) now they make such a big deal of it. All the lead paint has to be removed. Oh, I know. I know. Well, they were talking when they when they were... um, Going to re- remodel the the house at Nobska. I mean, it was full of yeah. lead paint. All yeah. paint with lead paint. Yeah, let's talk about Nobska. So your family moved from Gayhead to Nobska in '56, and your uh, father was an assistant for a while to uh, Ozzy Hallett, Osborne Hallett. Yeah. See, we weren't supposed to go to Gay to Nobska. Mm-hmm. We were we were scheduled to go to Anasquam. Oh. Uh, the keeper was retiring. And then at the last minute, he decided he wanted to go 
uh, a few uh, until he turned age seventy when you had to get out. Mm-hmm. So th- there was really no place to send us. There was one uh, up on the Canadian border, but my father said no, he didn't want to go. Didn't want to go that far. Sure. And because it was remote, it, could, well, it was a family station, so huh. we all could have gone. But it would mean I was out of school, but my brother was in high school. That would mean he'd have to uh, take a boat in every day to get to school. And plus the fact that he still was very, very asthmatic. The family was just afraid, you know, if they needed to get him to the hospital in the middle of the night, which is when he always had his asthma attacks. He decided, my father decided, no, he didn't think that would be a good good station for So the only other thing open was an assistant keeper in um, Woods Hall. He was the principal keeper, and he just felt he took it because that's the only thing that was available. Right. And then, you know, a few years later, Ozzy retired, but they never, he was he never got back as, as a principal keeper. It was because they just sent in Coast Guard to uh, live in the house I and, thought, and be as yeah. a keeper. I thought he was considered he was, the principal keeper after uh, Allett retired. Well, he was, but he, he didn't really like being at Nobska, I don't think. Mm. What did you think about it? What did the family think? After after Gay Head, it was a letdown. I, I said, I'm not going to Woods Hole. Woods Hole? What? That's just a <laughs> dropping off place for the steamship um, from New Bedford. Yeah. So I stayed on the vineyard for another, probably, let's see, they went in September. I came over in April, uh, April because my, my summer, my winter rental was... Mm. Uh, going to expire, so I had to go, I just decided to come home. Mm-hmm. I think I was 19 at the time. But, Nobs- you know, Nobsco was, it was home, there was no question about that. It was home. But, there was something special about Gayhead. I can see that. I mean, is yeah. a beautiful place, too. It's a beautiful spot, and, yeah. you know, really, you know, people, you know, people always, you know, they want to talk to me about living on a lighthouse, and, you know, they romanticize it, and to me, it was Yes, we we lived in a beautiful spot, but that was home. Your mother was quoted in, uh, as saying that the life at lighthouses was uneventful, and how people are always trying to romanticize it. She did. She mother, my mother was a lot of tongue and cheek type of a person too. But yeah, you know that's true. Oh, you live in a lighthouse? Yeah, it's just home. So I'm, I'm sure you know, gay at Gayhead and and Nobska. For the most part, there was a certain routine. But do you remember, is there anything that stands out in your mind as far as uh, especially, you know, bad storms or or wrecks that happened nearby or any anything that comes to mind like that? There were no, there weren't any wrecks at Nobska, and there weren't any at, at Gay Head either. Of course, at Nobska, people that were watching the submarine races would get stuck in the sand <laughs> on the beach. And they'd walk up to the lighthouse and ask if they could use the phone or if somebody could come and tow them out. And I think there was a couple of sailboats that needed needed help. But that's about it. You know, the foghorn would blow, especially in August when you'd have a lot of foggy nights and days and the phone would ring because, you know, the num- our our phone number was in, you know, listed in the directory. <laughs> people would call and just say, "Could you would you shut that so and so thing off?" 
course you couldn't. And of course you can't. You can't see bus chop. The foghorn has to be on. Yeah. Even though it, it could be sunny right in front of the lighthouse, but halfway across you couldn't see West Chop Light. And I'll tell you, there was just a lot of comments on Facebook the other week about not hearing Knobsker or West Chop. It was a couple of rainy nights or a couple of foggy nights. And, of course, now it's up to whatever boat is going through if they feel that they need yeah. uh, to hear the foghorn. They can program it in. But other than that, you never hear it, That's which, the... which we all miss. Yeah, yeah. There's something comforting about listening to a foghorn on a quiet night. The horn at Nobska, did you have trouble sleeping with that, or did you get used to it pretty fast? Well, you know, you get used to it pretty fast. I mean, at the beginning, it it was like uh, watching a silent movie on television when the foghorn blew, because you, know, you had three blasts, and you could hear the words, and then there'd be three more blasts, and then you could hear the, <laughs> you know, the words, whatever, you know, the sound on the TV. Plus, if you had a, were having a conversation, you had to kind of talk around the, the foghorn, too, right? You had to pause every time the horn blew? Well, no, we, no, we didn't pause. We just talked a little bit louder. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing that I remember between what, what was called, we called it the engine house, and then there was a little building on the other side of that called the oiled house where paint and kerosene uh, was, was stored. And there was a space between those two buildings, so that's where I would park my car. I can remember I worked at a bank in Falmouth. Actually, I did 44 years in banking. I started out at the Martha's Vineyard National Bank as a bookkeeper and retired. It was a vice president of Bank of Cape Cod. I came the, the shore road, come home to Nobsco one night because uh, it seemed like it was quicker. And I wasn't paying attention. And I pulled into my parking space, got out of my car, was walking right underneath that horn, and it blew. Mm. and I thought the ground was going to open up and swallow me. It was loud. <laughs> uh, I never did that again. I always paid attention. Yeah. Do you, I hope your hearing wasn't damaged. By the... <laughs> no, it could have been, but it didn't take me long to run in the house, that's for sure. Yeah. So I think it would have been an air-operated horn, is that right? It like was, yes. Compressed air. Mm-hmm. Yep. I know people would almost run off the road <laughs> if that thing blasted when they were driving by. Yeah. The electronic horns they use today are, are, don't even compare. Can you think of anything else that stands out for either Gayhead or, or Nobska? Well, I know at um, Gayhead and Nobska too, but really at Gayhead, the, once a year there was what they called an Eastern inspection. It was with a commandant from Washington, D.C., of the Coast Guard, would uh, make his tour through all the lighthouses in New England. And, of course, you know, they have they come into your house and go over go over everything. You know, it's a white glove treatment. They, you know, run their hands across the, their gloved hands across the windowsills, uh, the stove. I can remember once they came and they <laughs> opened the refrigerator door and, my mother said to them, you're welcome. And of course, these are the guys with a lot of scrambled eggs on their hats mm-hmm. and um, and shoulders. He told me, you know, you're welcome to open that, but that refrigerator is not government issue. Oh, I'm, ma'am, I'm, I'm so sorry. And, you know, they'd shut the door right away. They did the same thing with the oven <laughs> in, uh, in the stove. But those were 
my parents had bought those outright. They owned them. It was a gas refrigerator and a, a gas combination gas and oil stove. Mm. Uh, and that's part of what made Gay Head nice and warm because the, the oil stove part of the, the stove was always on in the kitchen in the wintertime. You know, everything was, you know, nice and warm. And another time, I, you know, during the Korean War, we could not allow visitors on the lighthouse grounds. And up until that time at Gay Head, they would, in the summertime, the tour buses would bring all of the tourists up island. They'd stop right in front of the lighthouse, and then they'd walk through the lighthouse grounds and over to the cliffs. I was kind of bored as a 12-year-old, soon to be a 13-year-old, and my mother said, well, why don't you do a little research, find out about the light, and take tours up into the tower? So I did. Uh, discovered it, you know, the light was made in France, 1008 glass-cut prisms, and how it revolved. And so I started, I, <laughs> I put an empty, um, Maxwell House coffee can right down by the door. Hmm. And then I put people up to the top of the tower and explained, you know, how the light worked and everything. And they'd come down and they'd, you know, put coin in coffee can. So I think I, I did that the month of August. And at the end, I counted up my money, and I had $75. And I thought, this is going to be my summer job from now on. Well, before the next summer came, the Korean War started, and, you know, the grounds and the tower were closed to... Um, I went to work in a little diner in Gay Head, but that's another story. So as, as the lighthouse grounds were closed, there was a, a gate at the entrance to the driveway, which looked like a little roadway itself and I saw this black car pull up one day and I saw somebody get out and start to take the the fence the gate down so I ran right out there and told them held up my hand you know no visitors (laughs) uh it was the eastern inspection guy right they got out of the car and they said you're doing your job it's all right I thought oh my god I'm getting my father fired because it was all the coast guard brass it was the Mr. Shea, who in, from Boston, who was the um, personnel officer for the civilian lighthouse keepers in New, New England, and there was commander from the Coast Guard base in Woods Hole, and the commander of the Coast Guard base in Boston, mm. all coming to do their inspection. Wow! And I told them they couldn't come in the driveway. <laughs> well, but it turned out to be good, right? You were doing. Oh yeah, job. it was good. Yeah. It was fine. They just well, she's doing her job because no visitors are allowed. Well, when you were given the tours there, you were following in a, a great tradition of lighthouse kids, you know, yeah. sons and daughters of keepers giving tours. I know there's a lot of that over the years. Well, mine didn't last too long. It was just one <laughs> summer. <laughs> yeah. Glad you made a few few cents off of it anyway, I'm oh, sure. Oh, I did. Well, I was fascinated. You know, I turned 13 that summer and, you know, wow, I could make some money. So that was, in a sense, your first job, I guess, right? That it was. I have one final question for you for bonus points. What am I going to (laughs) win? The satisfaction of uh, completing the interview. Uh, So I'm just wondering, uh, what was your favorite thing? If you could, uh, I know it's probably hard to just uh, say one thing, but what was your favorite thing about living at the lighthouses? Oh, my favorite thing, probably being on the ocean. No matter which room of the house you're in, you're surrounded by water, and I've always loved that. In fact, even 
even now, if, or when I used to leave work before I retired, I would drive by the waterfront in Falmouth, and I could see Knobs go off in the distance, and then Cushing could always see the vineyard. But that just that drive by the water, no matter what, no matter what type of a day you had, it always was relaxing and calming. So to me, it's just being on the water, living by the water. Uh huh. I totally understand that, and I kind of feel the same way about the ocean. So, Betty Hindley Hatsikon, uh, thank you so much for spending this time with me today. It's a great pleasure speaking with you. You, you and I have corresponded over the years, but never had a chance to have a conversation like this. So this is, this well, is a thank l- you so much, Jeremy. And uh, if you're ever in Falmouth, give a call and stop by. I have lots of memorabilia. Betty Hindley Hadsikon was recently in a documentary about Gayhead Lighthouse on Martha's Vineyard. The documentary is called Keepers of the Light, and you can learn more by going online to keepersofthelightfilm.com. I thoroughly enjoyed speaking with Betty about her family's lighthouse years. Memories like these need to be preserved before they're gone forever. If you know someone who is a lighthouse keeper or a family member of a lighthouse keeper, I'm always looking for first-hand stories. You can reach me by email at jeremy at uslhs.org. Our thanks to everyone connected with the U.S. Lighthouse Society and its chapters and affiliates. To find out about all things the Society has to offer, check out the website at uslhs.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider a donation or membership to support it. Our thanks to everyone everywhere in the world who works to save historic buildings and or historic knowledge. We're all on the same team. As always, thank you for listening and keep a good light. Let it shine. Let it shine.